The Real Investment Show. Just recently got off on a big rant about, you know, what goes on in Washington and especially with the Federal Reserve and Congress members trading on information that they know, right? And we've made a lot of comments here on the show talking about, you know, if you're serving the public that and you have access to information, particularly when you're driving monetary interventions, those type of things, whether it's in the government, you're doing spending bills or stimulus payments or whatever it is, or if you're in the Fed or the Treasury, and you've got advanced knowledge of, you know, QE programs and those type of things that you should not be allowed through, you know, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to trade stocks, right? I mean, just you've got access to information that nobody else has, and, and you know what's going on before other people. And so that's not really fair. And for anybody else, if you know, you and I did it. We'd go to jail for insider trading, but apparently it's okay for Congress and it's okay for the Fed members. And just recently, um, it, it was interesting. You know, we had Kaplan and and uh, you know a couple of other, uh, Rosengren um, step down from office for you know health reasons or whatever their excuse was. After it was exposed that they were trading stocks on the information that they had available to them at the Federal Reserve and millions of dollars worth of stocks, right? And it was interesting because the, the after it happened, Jerome Powell, who also <laughs> was buying and selling on information, says, well, we're going to have to review our ethics, you know, make sure that we're, you know, we're following all the rules. Well, that wouldn't even, that review wouldn't have even happened had they not gotten caught, right? It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, you get caught robbing a bank. It's like, oh, well, I, I need to review the rules on robbing banks. I didn't know it was illegal. So, you know, it's kind of a thing. Well, it's interesting just over the weekend. Now it's Vice Chair uh, Clarita. He traded millions of dollars one day before the emergency pandemic statement where the Federal Reserve started intervening with QE4. And you, know, you have to just kind of scratch your head at this. First of all, there's a purge going on. It's going to be interesting to see if, if the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, now this guy votes, right? He's, he's an important member. He's the vice chair. Be interesting to see if he now steps down. So again, these seats have to be appointed. So now you've got to appoint a new Dallas Fed member. You've got to you got to appoint a replacement for Rosengren. Now you're going to have to replace the vice chair. Powell may be in a good bit of trouble here as well. He's not liked by Elizabeth Warren. Uh, <laughs> over the, over the last couple of days, Elizabeth Warren has had a few incendiary comments to make about Jerome Powell's performance as Fed chair. So he may not get reelected. His term's coming up here soon. The, the point is, is that the Fed is being dismantled through their own actions uh, very quickly. And of course, this is going to require a lot of new appointments. And, you know, is this orchestrated to remove the hawks from the Fed members? Because again, you know, if, if, Joe Biden and the Democrats want to pass three and a half trillion or five trillion or whatever it is in terms of spending bills. The Federal Reserve has to be able to buy about 30 percent of that debt. If the Fed doesn't monetize 20 to 30 percent of the debt that's issued, interest rates are going to rise fairly sharply. That artificial buyer needs to be there to keep interest rates suppressed. Now, what happens if interest? This is the one thing that that people forget and and 
we've talked about this on the show a bit before, and the mainstream media definitely doesn't get it. The mainstream media is talking about right now is like, interest rates are going up. We're going to be at 2 2.5% on interest rates. No, we're not. The reason that we're not is because we're in what's called a liquidity trap. What's a liquidity trap? A liquidity trap is when low interest rates don't spur economic growth. Interest rates today have to remain low just to sustain the economic growth that we have. You remember all those calls at the first of the year where we're going to have like 10% economic growth this year and we were writing articles in January, February, March saying, no, we're not. Economic growth is going to slow very sharply heading into the end of the year. All these estimates of economic growth are way too elevated. Also, earnings growth, by the way. Those are all going to come down sharply, particularly as stimulus leaves the system. And this is the problem with with economists. They take a look at current data and they go, oh, well, this is doing this now. This is going to keep doing this forever. And just simple logic tells you that once all the stimulus money was spent, that people are going to go back to spending what they had before. And now with prices up, they can only buy less because they don't have any more income. And so that's what we're seeing now, right? We're seeing this very sharp decline in economic growth. Atlanta Fed just lowered their estimates for Q3 down to 2.2%. I mean, just a very, very sharp decline. Remember, they were at 13.5% for quarter two. (laughs) So, you know, we're we're back down to normal trends, which is exactly what we said was going to happen. But in order, if interest rates are to go to two, two and a half percent, just think about for a moment all the stuff that's in the economy that's driven by debt. Households are carrying record debt. Why? Well, because they don't have enough income to sustain their standard of living. I want to buy a house. I don't want to buy a $150,000 house. Who wants to live in a $150,000 house? It's, it's, you know, crazy. I know I only make 50 grand a year, but I'm going to buy a $350,000 house because I can do it because interest rates are low. If interest rates go up, A, what happens to those house sales? A big chunk of the housing activity and house buying that goes on is part of it is refi of mortgages, right? We have a lot of people when interest rates come down, they go refi their mortgage, okay? The other part is when interest rates come down, I can go buy a house because interest rates are low. But if interest rates go up and I'm in a 3% mortgage and let's say interest rates go up and my mortgage goes to 4.5%, who's going to refinance their mortgage at 4.5% when you're currently at 3? Nobody. So what happens to the refi market? What happens to the housing market? If I wanted to buy a $350,000 house and I can afford $1,000 a month, I'm just throwing out numbers here, but interest rates go up and that $350,000 house is now going to cost me $1,500 a month, I can't afford it. It's out of my budget. So housing sales stop. I go to buy a new car, even a used car at this point, since they cost more than new cars. Interest rates go up. I can't afford the payments. Variable rate interest card payments, they go up. Now that takes more of my disposable income out to pay for that, which means I have less income to spend on other stuff. So consumption falls. Economic growth weakens. 
See, if interest rates go up much at all, the entire system comes apart because everything is dependent upon debt, corporate debt issuance. All these zombie companies in, in the country that have been, that basically they survive by cheap debt. As soon as interest costs go up, they can't service their payments and they can't refinance at higher rates because they can't afford it. They go out of business. We're so far down the debt trap now that if interest rates go up much at all, it causes a cataclysmic event through the entire economy because everything is tied to debt, corporate debt government debt, personal debt, you name it. Everybody's up to their eyeballs in debt. So the Fed has to buy this debt in order to keep interest rates low because if they don't, the entire, the, the entire framework comes apart. They know this. So the problem for the Fed is, and this is, you know, we talk about maybe this is a little bit orchestrated to get rid of the hawks who are talking about tapering bond purchases. They can't taper bond purchases. Not right now. This is now this is the conspiracy theory, right? All of a sudden there's this, you know, this big exposure of all these Fed members that were insider trading. They're dropping like flies at this point, right? But in order for the Fed to keep doing what they, they need to do in order to keep interest rates suppressed is they've got to keep buying bonds. They can't afford to taper, and they certainly can't raise rates, not at this point, and not particularly if the Democrats want to pass another $5 trillion worth of spending. Somebody's got to buy a couple of trillion of that, and that somebody's the Federal Reserve. So we'll see what happens. But there is a lot of interesting things that are happening at the Federal Reserve right now, and particularly when it comes along with these exposures as to who's trading what and when. And, and again, it's just there's a very simple remedy for this. If you serve for Congress, House or Senate, if you're in the White House, if you're in the Federal Reserve, if you're in Treasury, if you're in any of the areas of government that are directly involved with money, if you're with the SEC, You can own treasury bonds, period. You take all your money. When you take that job, you take all your money, you invest in treasury bonds. And while you serve in that position, you can own treasury bonds. Go do your job. Be nice to see the SEC actually regulate the financial markets for the benefit of investors rather than for Wall Street. Once you leave, you can go trade your brains out. You can do whatever you want to do if you're a private citizen. But as part of the governing body, and particularly those that are making the financial rules and regulations, you can't trade. You can't have equity exposure. Imagine what would happen if you actually applied that same rule across Wall Street, where they're making markets and companies and they're doing these type of things. And you said, hey, you know what? If you're a market maker, if you are you know, involved in the investment banking activity, etc. You can't own anything but bonds. What would be the incentive now? Right? But look, this is all built about incentives. Just an interesting thought. If you want to make the investment system a bit more fair for everyone, maybe you start to apply some rules. Be back after the break. Ongoing 
you know, concerns in Washington right now, the debt ceiling is still looming, right? We didn't solve the debt ceiling yet. The Democrats have the ability to solve the debt ceiling very quickly. They're kind of still using it for some pressure point. October the 18th-ish is kind of the Treasury's drop-dead date for needing to raise the debt ceiling. But again, that's a really flexible number because there's revenues coming in every single day uh, into the Treasury from tax payments. And right now, we're right in the middle of tax collection season for extended filers. Personal taxes are due October the 15th. So there's going to be a lot more money coming in. And look, and, and the people that file their taxes late, they're generally your higher income earners, right? Because they're generally waiting for K-1s to come in and all kinds of stuff. So they don't generally file their taxes until the 15th. You know, your kind of normal W-2 workers are the ones that file on April the 15th. So lots of money coming in. We could go past the 18th, but let's use the 18th for the date for just the sake of argument for the moment. That's the drop dead date. We need to raise the debt ceiling or, you know, this horrible event is going to occur and we're going to default on our debt and it's going to be terrible. And the world's going to, you know, wheels are going to come off the cart and everybody's going to get laid off. The economy's going to crash. It's going to be terrible. It's not. We've raised the debt. This, we've raised the debt ceiling 78 times. This will be the 79th time when we eventually raise it and we will. No, the world doesn't come apart. We've defaulted on our debt before. On a technical basis, we missed interest payments. But everybody knows that as soon as we get our act together, and we will, that we'll make the payments. Everything will get done. We'll issue the debt. Everybody will get paid. It's all good. So it's important to kind of keep these things in perspective. But, none, you know, nonetheless, let's use this as great media headlines. Let's try to scare the snookers out of everybody so that they'll, they'll do something stupid. Right? That's kind of the idea. But right now, uh, progressives are really having a hard time trying to get this $3.5 trillion bill passed along with the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package because Joe Manchin says, look, we can't even pay Social Security at this point. You're wanting to pass another $3.5 trillion. Good for him. He's right. So now they're talking about cutting down the size of the bill. Joe Manchin's offered $1.5 trillion. They say that's, too, that's not enough. They're thinking somewhere between $2, two and a half trillion. So we're going to knock a trillion off of it. You know, trillion here, trillion there, between friends. Just money, right? I want you to think about this for a second. Between the two bills, even if Joe Manchin, which is, shall we even call that a reasonable offer to say, okay, look, we'll spend one and a half trillion plus 1.2 trillion. So that's $2.7 trillion on top of, that's not the budget. That's additional spending. So that's $2.5 trillion on $2.7 trillion, almost $3 trillion, on top of the money you need just to run the government for the year based on what we're doing. There was an interesting piece of uh, article over the weekend chastising Joe Manchin. It was uh, kind of a left-wing media outlet, and they said, Joe Manchin, he's such a hypocrite. You know, he's increasing— Defense spending left and right. Since he's been in office, he's increased defense spending by a trillion dollars or whatever the number was. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but you get the point. And he's like, this year alone, he's increased defense spending by another $80 billion. Well, yeah, he did. So did everybody else. As soon as you pass the continuing resolution 
you increase spending to every single department in the country. That's the whole problem with continuing resolutions is you're not running a budget. You don't sit there and look at the Defense Department and say, well, last year the Defense Department got you know, $850 billion. That's probably enough. Let's just leave that where it is. We don't do that. We just say, oh, last year they had $850 billion. Okay, stick another you know, $80 billion on it because we need to increase that by 8%. Because that's what the continued resolution does. It just increases spending across every department's budget by 8%. It just assumes that the rate of inflation and growth in the economy is 8%. It ain't. But we're spending that way. And this is the problem with the continued resolution. So you can't sit there and look at Joe Manchin and say, well, Joe just keeps increasing defense spending. Yeah, he also increased... Department of Defense spending, he increased Department of Education spending, he increased the Department of Agriculture spending, Parks and Wildlife spending. It all went up 8%, 8%. Salaries, up by 8%. That's the problem in Washington. We don't have any fiscal responsibility. We just pass bills now and just say, okay, it's just money. Just debt. Who cares? We're at $28 trillion and counting. Actually, way more than twenty-eight trillion now, almost twenty-nine trillion. But twenty-eight trillion and counting. Add another five trillion on it. Keep the numbers going. This is why, you know, <laughs> it was interesting during the Obama administration. The Obama administration doubles the national debt. Right, he goes from nine trillion to eighteen trillion while he's in office, and we go, oh my god. He's doubled the national debt. It's terrible. He's increased the national debt more than every president combined, going all the way back to Washington, uh, uh, George Washington. It's true. He did. And then Trump did it, and then now Biden will do it, and we'll keep doing it. It doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat or anybody else. We just don't have any fiscal control in Washington, which is why they're now coming out with this really, really bad idea called the trillion-dollar coin. This is one of Krugman's pet projects. So the idea is to print a coin, platinum coin, and value it at a trillion dollars. So here's how this, this uh, premise of idiocy works. The Treasury mints this trillion-dollar coin, gives it to the Fed, and the Fed basically credits the Treasury Department with a trillion dollars of printed money. It's all digital. The beauty about that is that there's no debt issuance. But do you see the problem with it? You just issued a trillion dollars worth of money with no asset behind it. If I increase money at an exponential rate, I just start, if you're going to do a trillion-dollar coin, why not just do 10 $10 trillion-dollar coins, right? You know, you can make these numbers anything you want. But the more that I increase the amount of money, the less value it has. One of the premises of modern monetary theory is that the debt is somebody's asset. And that's true on an accounting basis. The debt is somebody's asset. So when we issue debt to pay for stuff, at least there's an asset that somebody owns somewhere. 
right? When you just issue a trillion dollar coin and credit accounts, you know, it's 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 not even a real mechanism. I mean, technically the Fed could just, you know, print the money. There's there's a bunch of legality issues to this, and this is never gonna happen, but it's just the point of the conversation, which is that again, the lack of fiscal responsibility. Instead of saying, look, we are at a debt ceiling. We can't issue any more debt. We're going to have to cut spending. There you go. You don't have to issue more debt. You can just cut spending. There, there is a choice uh, in terms of managing government. You know, it's, it's like we've got a bunch of children up in Washington that are running the country, and it's, it's like, you know, no, you can't have that because I can't afford it, and they throw a fit, right? We've got a bunch of three-year-olds in the toy store in Washington, D.C., throwing a fit in the middle of the aisle because they can't have the toy they want. So we're all going to sit around, cross our arms, pout, throw a fit, rather than just doing what we're supposed to do and, and doing your job, which is to manage the economy and manage the government. Managing the government is just not spending willy-nilly. It is about doing what is fiscally right as well as what is correct in terms of creating national security, infrastructure. Those are the two jobs of the government. If you read the Constitution, the government has two jobs only, national security and infrastructure. Everything else belongs to the states. We've just over the years, got lazy, and we just started giving more and more responsibility to the government. We allowed the government to take more and more of the responsibility from us as citizens, and we keep going, well, that's okay. It's just that. And now we're in this problem. At some point, the system breaks. Everybody's just hoping it's not on their watch. You know, the debt comes due at some point, and, and this whole fiscal irresponsibility becomes a problem at some point. Everybody's just hoping it's not on their watch. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, all this. We're just hoping it's not my watch. It'll be the next guy's watch. But at some point, you know, you got to stop doing bad things <laughs> that make the situation worse. Trillion dollar coins are a terrible idea because it completely removes any responsibility on spending. If there's no debt issuance tied to it, now you've got no barrier. The whole point of the debt ceiling is to provide you a credit limit that says, hey, you're at your credit limit. Maybe you need to think about, you know, working on your budget a bit. We've pretty much scrapped the, the whole idea of a debt ceiling, and now we're just going to remove the whole debt barrier as well. There's only one thing that comes out of that, and it's not a good thing. Be right back after the break. Make sure that um, if you live in our Austin area, that you sign up for the upcoming event. It's our Right Lane Retirement Workshop. It is the most comprehensive workshop that we do with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso covering everything that you need to know from markets to retirement, so, uh, income maximization, Social Security, et cetera. Uh, that's coming up on the 16th of October in Austin. So simply go by our website. We've got a pop-up for the event. Uh, simply just sign up for the event. It's absolutely free. Love to see you there. Um, 
and uh, it's 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 like I said, it's a very very educational event. It's one of our most popular ones that that we do, bringing it to Austin live for you, and that'll be on October the sixteenth coming up. So again, get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com, get registered. Seats are limited, of course, as always, uh, because hotels are, you know, limited. <laughs> so, um, speaking of stuff, right? Um, the National Association. I should say, wait, the National Restaurant Association. You know who came first? National Association of Realtors or National Re Restaurant Association? It's because NRA was already taken. So <laughs> <laughs> the National Retail Association had to go with the National Association of Retailers because the Restaurant Association beat them to the punch. <laughs> National Restaurant Association uh, sent a letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell about the dire situation heading into the fall season. A couple of things that are coming out of government that are grossly impacting them, of course, are not only the fact that supply chains are shut down and that you've got a shortage of, of goods and, and services, you've got a labor shortage as well. But also the mask mandates um, in New York as a particular uh, as a issue. Um, restaurateurs there are having a lot of trouble because restaurant traffic's fallen sharply ever since the mass the uh, vaccine mandate went into effect. You have to have a vaccine in order to go to a restaurant. So people are just going, I won't go. I'm not going. I'm not going to deal with it. Especially when you got Grubhub, right? You know, this is this is the other problem. So. There's a lot of things that are kind of going on. They're really, really impacting the restaurant industry. 78% of operators say their restaurant experienced a decline in customer demand for indoor, on-premises dining in recent weeks because of the Delta variant spike. 63% of operators said their sales volume in August, historically one of the busiest months for restaurants, was lower than August of 2019. That was pre-pandemic. Costs are up. 91% of operators say they're paying more for food. 84% have higher labor costs. 63% are paying higher occupancy costs. Profitability is down. 95% of restaurant operators say their restaurant experienced supply delays and shortages on key food and beverage items during the past three months. Now, why am I telling you this? A couple of things. This isn't just the restaurant industry. It is everybody dealing with a lot of these same issues. And this is one of the big things that we've talked about. We're about to go into Q3 earnings season. There's some very heavy weights on earnings going into the third quarter and particularly the fourth quarter as we get ready to wrap up the year. Estimates for earnings are still exceptionally high. And they are starting to come down, but haven't come down nearly enough yet to compensate for likely what we're going to see here as companies are really faced, really kind of caught between a rock and a, a, a hard space here in terms of higher labor costs, higher product costs, higher service costs that they can't pass on to consumers. We take a look at the, look at the purchasing price index, right? Uh, which is the inflation gauge for purchasers versus the inflation gauge for consumers. There's the largest spread between those two inflation rates on record, which simply suggests that producers are unable to pass on the price increases to their consumers. Because if they were able to, CPI would be higher than it is. But that's not happening. 
So this is going to potentially really impact Q3 earnings. And look, valuations are very high for stocks. And so it's going to be important that you really pay attention to what you own in terms of, you know, holdings in your portfolio and look at where they're trading currently because you could have some real earnings disappointments coming up over the course of the next couple of months, particularly as we get deeper into earnings season. And, and we're going to see this. Um, a couple of things that we're going to see happen, of course, is economic growth is already slowing down. We talked about that earlier. Um, the Atlanta Fed has now dropped their earnings expectation, their growth, sorry, their economic growth expectations for the third quarter to below 3%. So I'm like, well below 3%. So again, we're rapidly returning back to trend economic growth of 2%. And 2% economic growth is not going to support the massive ramp and increase in earnings for corporations. So those earnings are going to have to come down, which means that valuations are not as cheap. Even on a forward basis, earnings are not that cheap. So you're really overpaying for earnings. And as you saw in this last little correction, this little 5% correction that everybody, you know, standing on building ledges for, for a week or two, the companies that got hit the hardest were the ones that were really, really extended and overvalued. And so this is why you want to kind of look at the risk you're taking in your portfolio and say, look, maybe this is a good time to add a little bit of value to my portfolio because value has really underperformed growth here. And look, it may not pay you well in terms of capital appreciation. But there's some very good quality companies that are very depressed and pay 6-7% dividend yields right now. And so they don't have a lot of downside risk in terms of the market. They're going to they they've got less downside and you're going to get paid 6-7% to hold them while we're kind of going through this reevaluation period in the markets. And then once we get through this, you can always rotate back out of those back into growth if growth begins to really take a leg up here. But again, the risk is on the growth side of the portfolio. That's the one thing, you know, the growth momentum side is the one thing you really kind of want to pay attention to because if you own companies that don't pay a dividend, that means you're solely banking on earnings growth to support that current valuation. If earnings growth comes in weaker than expected or there's, or there's, more concern about future growth because of supply chain disruptions or whatever it is, it could have a bigger material impact on the price of your portfolio than you expect. So just something to kind of be aware of. I mean, look, China is certainly a concern here. Labor costs are a concern here. The Fed is, is a concern here. Uh, you know, the Fed's talking about tapering going into the end of the year. That's reducing liquidity, removing that liquidity support from the markets. Um, Japan's a concern here. They're about to have a big change in the leadership in Japan. They're about to have a big change in leadership in Germany. Social Democrats had an overwhelming victory there over the conservatives with Angela Merkel. So there are changes occurring on a global basis as well as on a domestic basis that certainly warrant some attention relative to the exposure to risk you have in your portfolios. Again, what's happening in Washington right now with this whole debt ceiling debate issue, um, you've got to fund the government. You've got to get the debt ceiling raised. You know, they, they want to pass these spending bills. Will they get it passed? Won't they get it passed? I mean, the Democrats are in a really tough spot right now. They are heading up into the midterm elections. They're, they're losing support even amongst their own party. They've got a lot of internal fighting going on in between their own party. There's a, a very substantial risk that... If they don't get something passed 
going into that midterm election, that'll be their last opportunity to do so because there's a very big risk that Republicans could retake the House and the Senate. It's not a big margin on either side. So there's a real pressure on Democrats to try to get past something passed sooner rather than later. So this, is, this all leads to potential you know, headwinds for markets going into the end of the year. Now, as I said at the beginning of the show, we're into the seasonally strong period of the year. Um, markets are deeply oversold on a short-term basis. So there's certainly a potential here for a rally in the markets. But all I'm saying is, is that measure that rally accordingly, if we get it. Hedge some of your risk. If you didn't like that decline that occurred over the course of the last couple of weeks, it means you have too much risk in your portfolio. I mean, if you were up at night, I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, I just need this thing to bounce so I can get something, you know. That's not your your portfolio shouldn't be doing that to you, right? Your portfolio is something that you can forget about and go on with the rest of your life and do what you're supposed to do. It shouldn't be creating angst. And if it is, then you've got too much risk in your portfolio. So use whatever rally that we get here over the next couple of weeks and use that to rebalance risk. Lower some of your risk tolerance raise some cash, rebalance your equity risk, look to add some value stocks to your portfolio. There's lots of opportunity to reduce some of that risk. Now, look, caveat is if you reduce risk, you're going to reduce your upside. Market goes up 10, you're going to go up eight, right? That's got to be good enough. This idea that you've got to beat some random benchmark index has nothing to do with your portfolio at all has nothing to do with your financial goals, has nothing to do with that. All trying to, uh, the only thing that trying to beat some random benchmark index does, it requires you to take on excess risk. You know, this isn't fast and furious. <laughs> this is just managing money. So be good with what your goals are. And that's what I'm saying. If you go to our website, click on the newsletter link, I kind of go through these rules again because we kind of have to relearn these after a correction from time to time. So these are rules that I kind of reprint from time to time just to help people remember. There's some basic fundamental rules to follow when you're managing your own money in particular. One of those is investing isn't a competition. You're not trying to beat anybody. Don't worry about some random benchmark index. Don't worry about your neighbor. Just invest for what you've got to do and reach your goals because that's all that matters. Wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure and sign up for our Austin Live Right Lane Retirement Workshop coming up on October 16th. It's very enjoyable. It's a lot of fun and it's very informative. October the 16th in Austin, live event. Sign up now at the website. Also get our latest newsletter. Our recent blog posts are out and more. Realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world